Thank you, Karen. Indeed, glory to God, our redeeming God. Well, if you've been a Christian uh, for any length of time, you've most likely drawn some encouragement from the book of Psalms. Maybe in times of distress or of loneliness or of despondency, um, you found comfort in the familiar words, say, of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And from those words, you've drawn great encouragement as you've considered the richness uh, that is behind those words. But then there are other passages in the Psalms that are maybe a little perplexing, a a little um, difficult to wrap our minds around. Something like Psalm 69. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And we read verses like that. We think that's pretty harsh. Should we pray that? What, What do we do with those verses in Psalm 69? As we read the New Testament, we see the, the apostles interacting with the Psalms. And, and we read in the New Testament the apostles referring to the Psalms and seeing the Psalms as prophetic. And when we read the Psalm at first glance, we might not see how they draw that prophetic message from the Psalms. What are the apostles doing? And we, and we wonder how they see it and what we're not seeing or what we should see. Maybe you've even wondered, is it right for you to take the songs of King David as your own songs, or the songs of the people of Israel as Christian songs? Or maybe you sense it's appropriate, but you're not sure why. How exactly should we do this? How do we approach the Psalms? Well, as we begin this study um, that I plan to do over the coming months, um, just surveying the Psalms and introducing them to you, the, the first thing I want us to consider is the statement that the Psalms are indeed Christian Scripture. That is, the book of Psalms as a part of God's revelation are indeed Christian Scripture. They are for us, the church. God in His wisdom did not provide a new songbook for the New Testament, because the church doesn't need a different songbook. So we have the Psalms for us by God's plan and God's purposes as adequate and good for us, the church. And as I consider this statement, the Psalms are Christian scripture, I just want to briefly reflect on a few thoughts from 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3 is a familiar passage to us, reflecting on the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, I'm going to read beginning in verse 15. Paul is addressing his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I just want to make three brief comments about this passage as we consider the book of Psalms. Firstly, when Paul here refers to the sacred writings in verse 15, he has in mind the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures, the Scriptures that were written in Hebrew. That was all Timothy had as he was growing up. 
the Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. Secondly, we note all Scripture is profitable. That is, the Scripture is good for us that we might grow and mature as people who love and fear the Lord. And thirdly, look at what Paul says at the end of verse 15. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That is, the Hebrew Scriptures provide the truth necessary to identify, point to, and understand who Jesus Christ is. Listen to the words of Jesus at the end of Luke. He instructs his disciples, um, the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And here's what we read. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Here's a reflection on Paul's statement that all of Scripture is profitable and makes us wise for salvation. You can go to the Scriptures in the Old Testament and they will open up for us an understanding of who Messiah will be. What is his character? How will we identify him? What is his purpose in God's plan of salvation? So my aim, my my broad aim as we do this survey of the book of Psalms is that you might better understand how to read the Psalms so that you might more richly profit from this book of Psalms and that you might more clearly see how the Psalms speak of Jesus, Jesus the Christ or Messiah. Let me just say something here about these words because I'm going to use them interchangeably, and I don't want you to get confused. We're familiar with the term the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word Christ is a translation from the Greek. And that word Christos in the Greek is the translation from the Hebrew Messiah, or anointed one. So Messiah, Christ, anointed one, they're referring to the same word, the same concept. So I might sometimes say Jesus Christ or the Christ or Messiah or anointed one, and that all goes together. So file that away so you don't get confused. So the Psalms are Christian Scripture. We should think of them as Christian Scripture. But that leads me to the next point, and that is to consider the Psalms as the Psalms of David. We rightly refer the book of Psalms, the book of songs, as the songs or the Psalms of David. And that's not just because he wrote many of them, or more than half of them. But also, also, we might even say primarily, because the Psalms, the book of Psalms, this book has a particular Davidic character, or Davidic shape. It is what it is because of the kind of person that David was. So to say the book of Psalms is saying something more profound than King David wrote more than half of these songs, but that this book as a whole has its shape, has its character because of King David. So that these songs of David even are not merely the prayers of a particularly zealous Israelite set forth for the faithful to imitate. 
there's something more going on than merely that David was a faithful man. Rather, it is that these songs of David are the songs of the especially anointed king of Israel. This one whom the Lord, whose name is Yahweh, entered into covenant. He established a covenant with David, what we know as the Davidic covenant. And in doing this, God has established King David as a type or a prefiguring or a foreshadowing that, has, that is pointing to a perfect king, the anointed one who will fulfill God's plans and purposes in a way that King David never could. So King David points to the one that would come from him, the anointed one, the Christ. And who is the Christ? Jesus is the Christ. So because of the significance of the Davidic covenant, I want us to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I want to read this to you. And I would encourage you to write this down, that this Davidic covenant is significant and central in giving the shape and the purpose to the book of Psalms. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning halfway through verse 11. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. This is the message of God to King David. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you, before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So here we have this establishment of the Davidic covenant. When you first read it, it, it seems a little confusing. But what we see here is this establishment of God's covenant with David that's looking through history. And it's considering the descendants of David. David would have a son who had a son who had a son who had a son who would be kings. So there would be sons. There would be many who would descend from David as king. But it's looking, as it were, through the sons to the son the special son, the forever son, who would reign on the throne of a forever kingdom. So some of the sons of David would not be faithful. Some of the sons of David would need correction. Some of the sons of David would do horrible things. But that did not thwart God's covenant with David that one would come from him down through time and that this covenant would terminate on that son to establish that throne 
as a throne that would continue on forever and ever. And there wouldn't be more sons after him. So this is the Davidic covenant. David knows, he, he's aware of this special covenant that God has made, this special promise that God has made to him. David is thoughtful of what would happen in some degree in the future, though he can't see all the details. I want you to hear, I'm going to, we're jumping a long time now, David, almost a thousand years before Christ, so a thousand years later, here is the Apostle Peter commenting about this impact of the Davidic covenant on the way to read the Psalms. Peter, in his sermon in Acts 2, is reflecting on Psalm 16. This is Acts 2.30. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Okay, this is Acts 2 verse 30. So a few things. Firstly, David was a prophet. Here's Peter's reflection. David wrote with a prophetic message, with a prophetic office. He wrote knowing that God had sworn an oath. He knew he was self-aware about this covenant, this Davidic covenant, and that it gave shape to what he's saying. David, as a prophet, knowing God had sworn an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So what Peter is saying is, when David heard this expression from God from 2 Samuel that we read about the Davidic covenant, David understood that there was a singular focus, as it were, that the Davidic covenant would terminate upon. David, as a prophet, understood God's covenant, that God swore an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, and so David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. So, so Peter's giving us some guidance here about how to understand overall the shape of the Psalms. More than half written by King David. David certainly setting the scope, the shape, the orientation, the trajectory of the structure of the book of Psalms. So the Psalms are of David. They are Davidic. They have this Davidic covenant shape to them. And so David's writing, self-consciously, as a king, anointed by God, that there would be a future king who would reign on the throne forever and ever and ever. So as we look at the, the Psalms as a whole, and we think about David's self-consciousness, and that David wrote more than half the Psalms, it would seem that David then sets the trajectory or the focus for the book of Psalms. So that those who would come after him, who would write new songs, they would write them with an understanding of David's intention, David's focus, the shape that David gave to this book of Psalms. So those who came after him would finish the shaping of the book of Psalms to be right in line with David, the prophet's writing and um, giving this book of Psalms. And so the Psalms prophetically reveal 
something of Jesus. Something of Jesus in his earthly ministry, in the relationship between Jesus the man and his heavenly Father, and something of the eternal, forever nature of his kingdom and his rule. So much so that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, takes on the words of the Psalms as his own. Maybe the most familiar to us is Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is not borrowing some verses that suit his situation. Jesus is saying the words that were written down for that very situation. He is expressing rightfully the words that King David wrote anticipating the one who would sit on his throne as the Christ, as the Messiah. So the Psalms have this Davidic shape. And I just want to briefly then move and consider the structure of the Psalms. Now, as we go through um, and from time to time as I have an opportunity and I get to preach on the Psalms, I'm going to say a little more about the structure. But here is just a super dupe big overview of the Psalms. The Psalms are compiled strategically, carefully into five sections or five books. So in your Bibles, it, you, it, it will say book one, book two, book three, book four, and book five. The, the Psalms concludes with this crescendo of praise, of hallelujah chor- choruses, we might say, uh, these five concluding songs at the end. And it begins with a two-psalm introduction. So Psalm 1 and 2 seem very strategically placed in what they're saying um, and um, what they're doing to give an orientation to how we should read the book of Psalms. And that's evident, I think, in Psalms 1 and 2. And I think there is further evidence as you continue to read through the book of Psalms of the placement or the significance of the placement of Psalm 1 and 2. So I just want to say something about Psalm 1 and 2, because that's where our focus is this morning. Um, There are numerous thematic connections and verbal connections between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. For the sake of time, I'm not going to kind of go deeply into those connections, but I just want to um, comment on a few. Firstly, Psalm 1 begins with a blessing. Blessed is the man. And Psalm 2 concludes with a blessing. Blessing are those who take refuge in him. There's also a thematic development from Psalm 1 into Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is developing something of what we read in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 talks about meditating on the law of the Lord, the law of Yahweh. And who does the law of Yahweh ultimately point to? The Son of Yahweh. So Psalm 1 is this call, meditate on the law of the Lord. Psalm 2 points to the ultimate end of that meditation, the ultimate end that Scriptures point to. They point to the Christ, the Messiah. And that's what we we read in Luke, where Jesus opens up to the disciples to the road to Emmaus, Moses and the prophets and the writings, and says, look how these point to me and identify me as the promised Redeemer, the promised Messiah, the promised future King. Luke 24:44 is another place we can go and hear this. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples. Luke 24:44. 44. 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. How I would have liked to have been there, to hear Jesus open to, open to them the Scriptures. I, I wish there was a stenographer on hand I'm recording word for word. But you know what? We're not at a loss. God has given us, through the apostles, all that is necessary for us to understand how to read the Scriptures like Jesus guided the disciples to read the Scriptures. So, we see here the purpose of the Psalms. What's the purpose of the Psalms? Well, according to Psalm 1 and 2, Psalm 1, to guide people in the path of blessing. Psalm 2 then describes something of the journey of that blessing. This journey, which can only be our journey because it is first and foremost the King or the Messiah's journey. So, in the next few minutes, I just want to quickly survey Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 in a way that I hope will help you read it more fruitfully and hope give you a good orientation to think well about the reading of the Psalms. Let's begin. I'll read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." So here, Psalm 1 contrasts the ultimate end of the righteous and the ultimate end of the wicked. And in verse 1, we find three negative images. Firstly, the blessed man does not, firstly, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That is, the blessed man does not walk in a way following the counsel or the advice of the wicked. Secondly, the blessed man does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not align himself, take on the character of the life, the patterns, the living of sinners. Thirdly, the blessed man does not sit in the seat of scoffers. That is, he does not share their judgment about the world. Sitting in the seat, I think, alludes to the seat of judgment. And the wicked sit in their place of self-righteous self-opinionated, self-referential judgment, and they give their judgment. No, the righteous man, the blessed man, does not do this. But rather, verse 2, here's the positive contrast. The blessed man, verse 2, delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, let's look at that for a minute. What word do we see repeated? The law, the law is the focus here, the law of the Lord. 
This, this repetition draws our attention to the significance of this word, of this concept. Most basically, this word lore has to do with teaching. Teaching or lore. The, you, you teach, and when you hear the teaching, you're to respond to the teaching, and so it has a lore-like element to it. So initially, you might think, well, this speaks of the lore or the teaching that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. God comes down, Moses goes up, God writes the law out on a tablet and gives it to Moses. Maybe your thinking goes and just thinks of the law in that more restrictive sense. However, it could also uh, um, refer to the teaching of Moses in a broader sense, that is all that Moses gave, all that Moses wrote, which would be the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, but what the Jews referred to as Torah or the law or Pentateuch. Now, the leaders of Israel had a particular responsibility to meditate on the law of the Lord. They had the role to lead God's people, and in order to lead God's people well, it was necessary for them to meditate on the law of the Lord. So this language of Psalm 1 is a reverberation of God's specific instruction to Joshua. Listen to Joshua 1, chapter 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all according, do according to all that is written in it. So, so Psalm 1 here that David has written is, is rich with an allusion to God's instruction to Joshua, in Joshua that we read about in Joshua 1 verse 8. So there's this call, meditate on the law of the Lord, meditate on the law of Moses. But here's the thing, um, what about us? What do we do with this? Um, as Christians, we're not bound by the Mosaic law. To say it another way, we're not rescued out of the land of Egypt, but we have been rescued out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin. And so we learn about the nature of this spiritual rescue from the slavery of sin by meditating on God's physical rescue of the people out of the slavery of the land of Egypt. So we're not meditating on the law as an interesting history lesson. We're meditating on the law because it points to the character of God and the purposes of God. And we see in the law what? That it's pointing to Christ. Now we read something at the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua was the one who inherited the, the mantle of leadership for the people of Israel after Moses. And at the end of Joshua's life, um, there's this concluding discussion, and it records the fact that Joshua has written the book of Joshua. And at the end of Joshua, there's this note that his book, the book of Joshua, is to be added to the lore. So the, the writing of the prophet Joshua, then, is added to the writings of the prophet Moses. And so now to refer to the lore of the Lord is not just to refer to the Genesis through Deuteronomy, but now you add on the book of Joshua. And I think this, this gives a pattern that as the Old Testament prophets write, their authoritative writings are added to the lore. And so we, le- we learn, that is just one indication, but we learn then that to refer to the lore or the teachings of the lore 
is to refer to all of God's revelation. So here in Psalm 1, his delight is in the law of the Lord. What's this referring to? Not just what Moses wrote, not just what Joshua said extra, but all that the people of Israel has, have received by the authoritative work of God's prophets to meditate on all of God's revelation, to meditate on the law of the Lord. But look at what word is used here in this meditating. There's another word, not just meditating, the second part, but firstly, this delight. His delight is in all of Scripture. The blessed man delights in God's words, delights to know God because we know God through His Word, and delights to know who the Word points to, and that is Christ. So this psalm is not only, though, a call to delight in the law, but there's an implication. If the book of Psalms is written by the prophet David and other prophets after him, then the book of Psalms is also encompassed by this term, the law. So to meditate on and to delight in the law of the Lord is not just Moses and Joshua and the other history books and the other prophetic writings but it's also a call to meditate on this book itself, the book of Psalms. Delight in the Word of God and delight in the book of Psalms. One final comment then. Not only are we to delight in the book of Psalms, but we find in the book of Psalms an example of what it is to delight in the law of the Lord. The Psalms itself is modeling the very thing that it calls us to do, to meditate, to delight, to contemplate, to reflect on the law of the Lord. And this meditating, this delighting, is to happen day and night. In all circumstances of life, meditate on the law of the Lord. Consider the teachings of the law, consider the revelation of God, and consider its um, application in every aspect of life, day and night. So let me just pause here for a moment. What's capturing your attention? What's delighting your soul? What does your soul reflexively go and contemplate and meditate on and think about? Are you distracted by the allurements of culture? Are you giving your attention to the voice of social media or whatever other distraction you might have, hear the call of Psalm 1 this morning. Delight in the beauty and the goodness and the richness of God's Word. Delight in how God's Word reveals Christ and God's work of salvation and redemption for us. Well, that leads us to verse 3. Well, now we have a picture of the blessings that flow for those who follow the way of wisdom, for the righteous, for the blessed man. What's it like? Verse 3, such a man, such a woman who is blessed is like a tree that's planted by never-ending streams of water. So that the tree grows 
and continues to grow. It flourishes. It gets big. It gets strong. It bears fruit consistently. And it's good fruit. And even if there's a strong wind or a bit of a dry spell, the leaves never die and fall off the tree because the tree is drawing the life-giving water out of these streams that are never exhausted. What a beautiful picture here of the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is likened to the streams that never dry up. The blessed man is blessed. Why? Because he's drawing from this life-giving nature of the law of the Lord. And he'll never wilt. He'll, He'll always bear fruit. She'll never wilt. She'll always bear fruit because because the blessed delight and meditate in the law of the Lord and it's nourishing, it's life-giving, it's satisfying, it's enduring. But as you read this psalm, in light of the ministry of Jesus, the significance of this imagery just opens up to us. This life-giving water is the life-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God that enlivens to us the word of truth. As it were, it brings it out from being dead words on a page to a living word of God that animates us and drives us and transforms us. So we ought not to be surprised at words like this from the mouth of Jesus in John 7. John 7 and verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we, as the church, can read Psalm 1 with a richness and a depth that not even the saints of the Old Testament were able to experience. We're not changing the meaning of the text here. The the meaning's there. But we understand the depth and the richness of the meaning that's contained in this text before us. And so, the blessed man who delights in the law, who's like this tree planted by the streams that never cease, Look at this final phrase in verse 3. In all that he does, he prospers. What a promise. What a glorious promise. In all that he does, he prospers. And this kind of promise gives hope, doesn't it? Here's, Here's the hope. Those who treasure the Lord, those who treasure his words, who delight in his words, those who delight in Christ, in all that he does, he will prosper. What a What a joy for us to receive this declaration of richness and abundance of blessing. But doesn't it raise some questions for us? What exactly does it mean in all that he does, he prospers? Does that mean our life is free from difficulty? Does that mean that right now, in this point of time in history, we will have health and wealth and prosperity? What does this prospering mean? Well, we'll see this further in the book of Psalms, but 
we read later in the Psalms a question like this. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do they prosper? Same word. Why do they prosper? Why aren't we prospering? What actually then is the nature of this prospering? And then a related question is this. Who is righteous enough to take this promise for themselves? Who is righteous enough to say, I deserve this level of prospering? Even King David understands the true nature of his life. Even he understands he doesn't live up to the ideal of perfect righteousness. Hear King David from Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. There's no one living who meets the standard of perfect righteousness. But there is only one who has comprehensively and perfectly resisted the thinking and the activity of the wicked and fully and completely and categorically delighted in the law of the Lord, and that is the Christ, Jesus. But we are pressed still further. The life of Jesus. Was it pain-free? Was it suffering-free? How do we think about this promise of prospering as we consider the life of Jesus? And so we're pushed, we're provoked as we think about this psalm and the scope of Scripture and the life of Jesus. We're pushed and provoked to look beyond the mere appearance of things, the outer of things, we might say the, the earthly presence to consider eternal spiritual realities, to consider what is real but not physical, and to consider what is eternal and not fleeting. And so the enduring stability of the righteous pictured here as this tree is contrasted with the instability of the unrighteous. And what's the instability of the unrighteous pictured like? Like the light insignificance of chaff that the wind just blows away into oblivion. A tree planted, steadfast, growing besides water that never um, is exhausted to the chaff that's blown away. There's a contrast. One is stability and one is instability. One is permanence, the other is transience. So what is the end of the wicked? The end of the wicked is that they will not stand in the judgment. Not mere temporality here. They will not stand in the judgment. They will forever be separated from the Lord. But the Lord, He knows the way of the righteous. And the blessing of this knowing and this fellowship with the Lord, with Yahweh, has no end. This prospering, this prospering is a prospering that is far deeper, far more profound, far more enduring than health or financial success, 
or earthly stability. This is a prospering that is a spiritual prospering that has an eternal end in mind. So someone is not just looking at life on the planet, on this earthly presence, in a mere short time span. Someone has an eternal perspective, a deep, rich, spiritual perspective. And the call of someone is to provoke us out from thinking just merely on earthly terms, temporal terms, to consider the enduring spiritual realities, the glorious enduring spiritual realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of eternal fellowship with the Lord. What a beautiful statement. Verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows. The blessed man is a man who is under the care and the sovereignty and the working of the Lord. So Jesus is the ideal righteous man of Psalm 1. He is the one who perfectly lives out the teaching of Psalm 1. And our only hope of entering into the blessing that Psalm 1 promises is through faith in that perfect king who perfectly fulfilled Psalm 1. So is Psalm 1 for us? Yes. Because first and foremost, it's for Christ. And so it is for us as well. We who are now united into Christ can take on and pray the words of Psalm 1 because of Christ. Christ is the perfect example of Psalm 1 and Christ is our hope as we pray Psalm 1. So now we turn to Psalm 2. Don't be discouraged. I will be more brief on Psalm 2. I, I labored to not have this a long message, and it was painful. So come back tonight, because I have more to say. Um, so just briefly, Psalm 2 introduces to us the main characters of the book of Psalms. Firstly, Yahweh, the Lord. Secondly, His anointed King, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Then thirdly, the enemies of Yahweh and His anointed. And then fourthly, those who take refuge in him. So they're the main characters of the psalm. They're the main characters of the psalms as we read through. But still, what's the overall approach that we should have to the psalms? Well, from Acts 4.25, we have confirmed to us that this psalm was written by David through the Holy Spirit. And so David, remember, writing the psalms as the king of Israel, anointed by God, with knowledge that one of his sons would be the anointed one who would be superior to him and reign eternally on his throne. So David, he's a type uh, of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And his life points towards Jesus. But David's life and his kingship didn't come anywhere near to the ideals of Jesus. In verse 8, we read this. Um, Let me just read a few verses. Verse 4. 
in response to the rebellion of the nations. God says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So David is writing this prophetically. Um, At no point did David's kingdom reach over all the nations. At no point did David's kingdom um, reach the impressive um, strength and um, breadth of, say, the kingdom of Egypt or the Mesopotamian kingdoms. Not only that, but when the book of Psalms reaches its final shape after the exile, there actually isn't a king on the throne. So not only through David's um, prophetic message, but historically through the the final editing of the book of Psalms, we, we see that this psalm has this perspective way beyond David. It's speaking of a one who would be a king like no other king. The king that would come from David. So this would be hyperbole for David. but nothing more than hyperbole for David. It is indeed prophecy, anticipating the horn that would sprout from David, the one who would reign as Yahweh's son, sitting at Yahweh's right hand, reigning with power over the nations. The psalm anticipating all that God would do through his son and how God would 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 humble and judge the world through His Son. How God would be exalted through the reign of His Son and how God would bless people through His Son. So Psalm 2 here says something about a sure and future punishment that would come through the reign of the Son. But it closes with an exhortation. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2, verse 11. Here's the exhortation. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Serve the Lord, rejoice with trembling, through what avenue? Through kissing the Son. Through recognizing and worshiping the Son, the Anointed One, as the Son of God. And through then, through that then, there is this hope of refuge in God. How do we find refuge in God from punishment? Through His Son. Kiss the Son. Worship the Christ that you might have blessing. And so Psalm 2 concludes with this declaration. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The conclusion to Psalm 2 ties back to the opening statement in Psalm 1. Blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord. 
Who is the focus of the law of the Lord? The Lord and his anointed one, the promised forever king. So our only hope is to know the Christ through the word and in him find refuge. And this is the message of the Psalms, that we would recognize the path of blessing. And the path of blessing comes through us in recognizing the Christ. And we recognize the Christ because the Psalms speak of him. And then we can read the Psalms. We can take the Psalms. We can pray the Psalms because of who we are in the Christ, in the King, in Jesus. We are united to him. And so, as I said earlier on in the message, we read the Psalms, not as a book of songs, for the people in the Old Testament, but a book of songs, yes, for the church, because the church does not need a second songbook, because we have the songbook of our Redeemer, and we know Him through it. Let's pray. Our Father God, I thank You that You are a God of mercy and grace, and that in Your mercy and grace, You have sent us a Redeemer to rescue us from judgment, the judgment we deserve, because there is none righteous, No, not one. If it were not for Christ, we would have no right to take Psalm 1 as a psalm of hope or Psalm 2 as a psalm of hope. Oh, Father, we look to you for mercy. We take refuge from your wrath because of Christ the promised descendant of David. In him is our hope. Father, life in this world is difficult and challenging. Sometimes it's easy to forget your rule, your authority, and to not consider the, the reality and the importance of your gospel message and your eternal plan. Help us to take in faith the words of someone to delight in you and to receive and to take hold of the promise that to those who trust in you through your son, they will indeed prosper into eternal life. And that is our hope. Our hope because of Christ, our Redeemer. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing.